Again, that's James 3, 1 through 12, on page 1012 on your Blue Bibles. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Although they are large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very strong, very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and thank you for that reading. Um, My name is Robin. I'm a pastoral resident uh, here at Holy Trinity Church Northside. Uh, And if I haven't met you yet, I I would love to uh, directly after the service. I hope you all had a joyous and uh, happy uh, Thanksgiving holiday this past week. Uh, Thanksgiving, I I I would say, is my favorite holiday in the calendar year. And I was in Virginia last week, and I was sitting with my uh, niece and nephew at um, our favorite fast food restaurant, Chick-fil-A. And I said, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. And she, she's in fifth grade. Abigail said, why? And I said, it's just, I love the food. Uh, I love gathering with family. And I said, what's your favorite holiday? She goes, uh, probably Christmas. I said, why? He's like, well, there's, there's really good food there too and family. But also we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And I felt really rebuked <laughs> after that from my fifth grade uh, niece. Now, holidays can be uh, wonderful, uh, family, truly, friends, food, and fun. But sometimes uh, it can get a bit awkward. Uh, sometimes our words uh, during those holiday events can do some damage. Casual dinner uh, can uh, quickly turn into some really awkward silences uh, if you or your crazy uncle, says something unsavory. We've all been there and experienced this. Because our speech can bring forth good, but it also can bring a lot of bad. Uh, Years ago, just for an example, I'll put myself out there, uh, I said to a friend something along the lines of, you're the most generous, sacrificial people that I've ever met. That's, that's pretty encouraging, right? You're the most generous, sacrificial people that I've ever met. But on another instance, to the same person, out of a fit of frustration, and I would say in sin, I said this to the same person. I said, I've never met someone as narcissistic, selfish, and self-absorbed as you are. Yikes, right? <laughs> or maybe that's how I wanted it to come out. But regardless, that's horrible, right? 
why do, why do our tongues do this? You guys are like, speak for yourself. But, but, but why? In one moment, we can encourage someone up into the clouds. I think we've all been there. And yet in another moment, we could bring them down to the dirt. Why does that happen to us? Well, our passage today addresses this very serious topic on the tongue and what happens when left apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, and I would say the sanctifying work of God, uh, there's devastating consequences. But first, let's go to God in prayer. And Father, we ask that we may have the strength to tread humbly uh, through a difficult passage. May we trust in your word to do the heart work that we so desperately need. And this for your sake and glory. We pray this in the Son's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles open, again, to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. After a brief warning from verses 1 through 2, we're going to go over three main aspects, or we can say dangers, of the tongue. And I'll repeat them as the sermon goes along. But the three points are, uh, number one, the power of the tongue, which would cover verse 3 through 6. Number two, the tameless nature of the tongue, verse 7 and 8. And then finally, number three, the root of the tongue's evil, verses 9 through 12. But first, 1 through 2, a brief warning and a warning to a particular group of people. Verse 1 says, again, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I went to a conference, I think it was in April or May earlier this year, uh, a conference for pastors, and one of the main speakers was actually speaking on this very passage. And on verse 1, he looked out to about a 1,000 pastors from across the country, even across the world, and said, well, this is a bit late for you all, isn't it? And of course, he was having a bit of fun, but it is kind of a scary verse, especially if you teach and preach. But actually... If you look at the text there, that word for teachers in the original Greek can be translated as teacher, yes, but also as master. And there are plenty of different biblical Greek words used in the New Testament for shepherd, for elder, for overseer, all words that are interchangeable for the use of the office of pastor, but none of the words are used here. So I agree with John Calvin 500 years ago to a contemporary scholar, Douglas Moo, that this author is not speaking directly about those who are current pastors who have just gone AWOL or gone awry, but rather those in the church who assume this authoritative yet arrogant, erroneous tone when instructing others in the church, that desire to someday become teachers in the church. They exude this kind of, I'm better than you. I'm higher than you. I'm godlier than you type of attitude. And we see some of this already uh, in the preaching through James earlier in the showing of favoritism with the rich versus poor, this kind of elitism in the church. And so Mu also adds that there were plenty of people in the church who thought that they could preach and teach in the church, but weren't spiritually mature enough to do so. And so presumably, as we'll see in this chapter, people who had no self-control over their tongue They were saying, why can't I be that teacher? But in a broader broader sense, something is happening. This is a general epistle, not to any one specific Christian or church, but amongst all the churches and amongst all the brothers and sisters in that time. Something is happening amongst the churches. There is evidence of slander, of gossip, of evil and distorted lies and teachings, false teachings that 
he'll address later on in his letter, but all the New, Test- New Testament authors had to deal with this type of problem to a major extent if you read through all the epistles and letters. So there is a brewing disease infiltrating the church communities, especially with the tongue, and this has to be stopped. But does this warning exclude pastors? Does this warning exclude elders and church leaders? And it's just talking about these uh, wayward laymen. Of course not. You see that he also includes himself in the warning. But everyone is under the umbrella of this warning. And this broader warning in the passage about the tongue, what teachers use all the times because this can be applied to anyone who lives and speaks every day. And this would equally be as ridiculous to assume teachers need to watch their tongues, but laymen can unleash them without any restraint. Some of you might be sitting there like, okay, let, let's, let's get through this passage because, good, I have no desire to become a teacher in the church. I have no desire to become a pastor or anyone with spiritual influence with my words anyway. But your words, they still matter. In your discipling of others, your words matter. Your evangelism to others, your words, your witness matters. Our children's ministry, our community group ministries, actually all our ministry endeavors, parents to your children, leaders to members and congregants, all our words matter. As we'll see, Jesus speaks to these matters affecting everyone. He says, you don't have to turn there, Matthew 12, verses 36 through 37 Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That's for pastors. That's for laymen. That's for politicians. That's for teachers and farmers. That's for parents and children, anybody. We, have, we may have thought our careless, sinful words have a temporary shelf life, but Jesus instructs us differently. How sobering that is. I mean, I'll be first in line to tell you that my hurtful words in the past have caused long-lasting effects on others. I have sinned. I have fallen short in this area, most definitely. And all the more because I spoke from a position of spiritual authority. So I sit under this preached word, and I tremble in humility. Jesus warns in Luke 12, verse 48, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So the warning at the outset about becoming teachers is somewhat of a jumping off point, as one scholar notes, to talk about the broader problem of the tongue. So when we transition later from verse 3 to 12, it applies to everyone, but he's saying first, uh, don't, don't aspire to be a teacher so quickly. It's not, it's not for all of you. This is a serious matter. And because this is a serious matter, the matters of the tongue, the James actually deals with our speech at least, at least four times throughout this letter. He gives more and more examples as the letter goes on. We remember at the end of chapter 1 when Pastor Kyle was preaching, James says that if we don't bridle the tongue, our religion is actually worthless. Words matter. And so continuing in verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole tongue. Even teachers can stumble. That Greek word can be translated as sin, actually, literally. Even teachers can sin in many ways, including our speech. And the goal for all people, even though not perfectly attainable until heaven, is to have someday 
complete sinless control over the tongue, which will be in heaven, but which means also to have complete control over the whole body. But that should be the goal, James says. So is James discouraging everyone from becoming a teacher at the church? Of course not, but not many. And this must come with a stern warning. So again, he's using the role of teachers and their speech as a segue to talk about the need for all believers to heed the following warnings about the dangerous tongue. And I said there's three main aspects or dangers of the tongue. And the first point is this, verse 3 through 6, is the power of the tongue. If you look at your Bibles in verse 3 and 4, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Bits and bridles were used as harness devices around a horse's mouth and head uh, so that their rider could easily steer them a specific way. My former church members uh, they're so funny. They would say, Robin, what was it like to ride on a horse to school every day? And I said, that's not funny. <laughs> Words matter. And with the ships in verse 4, I think this is illustrated even more forcefully for us in our contemporary world. As we see, I mean, back then they had some large ships, but now, I mean, massive ships controlled, comparatively speaking, to these tiny steering rudders at the very back. He doesn't stop there, but offers more metaphors to help prove the point. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things, verse 5 says. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. This is alluding to what was referenced at the beginning of those who desire to become teachers or quote-unquote masters who would boast of great things or even of themselves. The tongue is so powerful and dangerous because we often view this small thing as insignificant and unable to affect other things. But oh, how they can. Small things can cause great disasters, this author says. My cousin has several uh, restaurants in Washington, D.C. He has three in D.C. and one in San Diego. He's an up-and-coming kind of star in D.C., I would like to proudly say. But sadly, one of them went up in flames a couple years back. Um, and it, this wasn't someone who came with this giant, powerful flamethrower to take it down. But they found out that it was a small, tiny spark from a small electrical socket in the kitchen caused almost the whole building to go up in flames. No one was hurt, thank goodness. But how crazy, just a small thing like that. People often marvel, hopefully not of the experiences, but people marvel how quickly a small cooking oil fire from a little pan can cause the whole house to go up in flames in just a matter of minutes. My brother-in-law is a really skilled firefighter for many years. And after a house fire and after everything is finally put out, firefighters, he explained, could eventually trace the fire back to the source based on flame patterns. And he told me that they once traced the whole house fire to a tiny part of the upper attic where there was a squirrel's nest. And a squirrel had chewed through an electrical wire up there, and that tiny spark led to the destruction of the whole house. For those of you guys who've heard my previous apartment squirrel problems, I, after that story, I dislike them even more now. <laughs> but isn't that crazy? James says... That's like your tongue. Your tiny tongue is powerful and can cause a great deal of damage. 
In Virginia, the church that I grew up in many, many years had a very nasty church split some many years ago. And at one of the services I attended, it was in Korean. I couldn't understand most of the service, but my mom wanted me to attend just to see what was going on to my home church. I was like, that was a pretty normal service. But as soon as the service ended, representatives from both, of both warring factions marched up to the platform, some with megaphones, and started screaming at each other that the other party was in the wrong. And I was just sitting there in the pew witnessing this disastrous moment. Eventually, cops had a, like eight cops ran in to a church service that had to break it all up. How did that all happen? Words. This didn't happen overnight. They didn't say, hey, let's, let's make a mess of the service tomorrow. We just had a great idea. Let's just fight. No, this probably happened over many, many months of words being spoken. Small, steady conversations of dissent and, div- and divisiveness turned eventually into great fires of chaos. Eventually, the church did go through a very nasty official split. James continues in verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Two Old Testament references to help us. You don't have to turn there, but Proverbs 16, verse 27 reminds us, A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Psalm 120, verse 2 through 3, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Verse 3 says, What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? This is helpful, because the psalmist is asking God for deliverance from deceitful and lying enemies, but in verse 3, he's also lamenting his own tongue's depravity. You see, the tongue can have a very negative staining effect also. He is not saying the root of all evil is the tongue but is alluding to its destructive and sinful effects. One writer said this about this verse, quote, evil speech, including blasphemy, gossip, slander, lying, false vows, and the like, has the power to spoil, stain, and corrupt the entire moral character of a person, end quote. Think about what is listed there. Do we struggle with any of these things? And if so, do we see its staining effect, or do we just let it pass? You might say, but, but I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm immune to that list that was just spoken about. I have this invincible force shield that protects me from ever falling into gossip, slander, or lying. We also know that can't be true. We know too well that we ourselves, because we still have the old flesh, the Bible says the old man, as it's called, to wage war with, that we're continually being conformed to his image, but we're still battling, yes, our sinful nature. So I guess what is being said here is be warned of all the effects of a sinful tongue. Don't think you're immune to its destructive nature, but also flee from these things by the power of God. And next week's passage, in the context of the whole letter also, we see where that power comes from and what it is. But flee and pursue from God. I think many people think a tongue that sets things on fire ablaze is one that is full of rage. It's really audibly loud. It's so temperamental and outlandish. But this metaphor includes all sorts of temperament. 
You can have a tongue that set th- sets things ablaze without yelling and screaming. Subtle jabs with the tongue here and there, sprinkled with some kind of words, still can set things on fire. You know, the church that I was talking about, I'm sure there was personalities of all types. There were the people with the megaphones setting things ablaze in that fight at the church. But I'm sure there were some members sitting in the pews kind of masterminding the whole thing that you would have never thought had that desire to set things on fire yet subtly, quietly. Oh, the tongue in all type of circumstances and aspects can cause such damage. So whatever temperament or personality we have, oh, we're not immune to its effect. We're all sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. So that's the power of the tongue. Now to point two, verse seven through eight, the tameless nature of the tongue, the tameless nature of the tongue. Here's more bad news. Verse seven and eight, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. You see, we see this more and more today with more and more wild animals and creatures are tamed. I'm not an animal guy. I like watching them on TV. I don't want to tame any wild animals. But more and more, we're seeing these wild animals being tamed. Uh, Kongju and Earl went to Thailand, I think it was last year, and they showed me a picture uh, in one of the zoos that you can get up to this tamed, gigantic, white tiger, and as they were slowly petting its back, they smiled and cheesed and took a picture. And they showed us this picture. And I thought, are you guys crazy? I would never, ever go a mile away from this tiger. But they're alive. <laughs> they're sitting there. Even the craziest wild animals can be tamed to some degree. It's remarkable. But James is saying, if you think that's crazy, oh, look at the human tongue. You can't tame it. The text says it's restless continuously moving type of evil, full of deadly poison. I think of those super poisonous snakes that you see on National Geographic shows, slithering around, restless, and one bite, and you're done. I hate snakes. <laughs> and at this point, you might be saying to yourself, okay, I get, why is there so many metaphors, so many illusions? I get it, the tongue is dangerous. Why is James doing this. Well, I can only surmise that the author has seen firsthand this particular doctrine of evil play out. So he's trying to write in all seriousness and utter detail so that the reader doesn't overlook this as some, hey there, hey, hey church, hey churches across the, the lands, uh, uh, Christians that I know, be, be careful with your words. Let's, okay, let's move on to the next thing. I, actually, if the, if the passage was actually that brief, we too might casually overlook this. But no, the author painstakingly, he takes his time with this. And for our own good. We remember that he introduced the topic earlier in chapter 1. I said, your religion is worthless if you can't uh, bridle the tongue. Now with a fuller uh, discourse here at the beginning of chapter 3. And then, and then he's going to address it a couple more times in chapter 4. Over and over and over again. He's not dropping it. This is of absolute important business. This tongue cannot be tamed on our own, and this can wreak utter havoc. That's the tameless nature of the tongue, so be wary. Now to the third and final point on the dangers of the tongue. Number three, the root of the tongue's evil. Let's look through verse 9 through 12. 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. I don't have to interview you after the service to see if this applies to any of us, but many of us have come and sung praises here, have listened to the word preached, and said to God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, and then just a quick road rage experience right after church, everything turns topsy-turvy, or maybe it's a fight with a friend, or someone that you know, or a phone conversation with a family member can go awry right after we speak praise of God. James says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. If you ever thought he is speaking to non-Christian with these warnings, oh, these are for the, the, the worthless people uh, that, that Proverbs is talking about, the, the people that walk in unrighteousness. No, this clarifies that he's still speaking to Christians everywhere. Believers who bless God, but also can so easily turn around and curse others who are also made in the image of God. This shouldn't be so. That doesn't mean we don't ever sin and fall this way. James knows this. But this shouldn't be the new accepted form or trajectory of our obedient living. And out of all and, and, and out of the evil tongues comes sin and offends God, just like all sin offends God and his holiness. I think it was R.C. Sproul that wrote, quote, Scripture condemns verbal sins such as lies, gossip, or insults as severely as it condemns adultery and murder. And he listed all the kind of cross-references there. But this goes against our Christian culture today, doesn't it? I mentioned in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago what Jerry Bridges, he wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Murder and adultery and the like are very much sins looked down upon in our Christian circles. But gossip, slander, things with the words, belittling someone at work or at church or in the family is often overlooked with a passing glance. It's what he calls, they're kind of respectable. We can kind of deal with that, not so much with a guilty conscience. But murder and adultery, oh, we go through a season of repentance, don't we? Or lust, or all these other heinous things that we can think about. But the things, sins of the word, of the tongue, we can overlook that easily. Verse 11, does a spring forth pour forth from the same opening, but both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You see, these exaggerated examples are to prove this further, that we should not, that this should not be part and parcel of what comes out of a believer. And we notice that James, he's taking the same examples that Jesus uses in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, we recognize true disciples, those that practice true religion, by what? By their fruits. We can identify them. So what is the root of the tongue's evil? Is the organ itself this evil monstrosity of no one British pastor Andy Gimmel suggests is the tongue's waywardness a symptom or actually is it a symptom of a larger disease fellow back sufferers you guys know some of my struggles this year can understand that pain radiating down your leg sharp pain sometimes or sometimes dull numbing pain you could feel down lower in the leg, can actually be all the way up your spine. 
It's actually a herniated or a bulging disc that's pressing on a nerve that's traveling all the way down, and you're always just getting treatment for your lower extremities and your, your foot or your knee or your thigh, and, and you're saying, doctor, what's going on? But it's all the way back to something different. And so the point is not to simply do away with the tongue, but look at what's causing the tongue to do its deadly damage. Jesus helps us. Mark seven fifteen. Jesus says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, this author understands that the tongue is being driven by something much deeper and greater than this tiny organ. Being around his half-brother Jesus, James remembers that all evil things come from the evil heart. And I'm going to read what Jesus says further in Mark 7, verse 20. And he said, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person, Jesus says. The root is our own sinful hearts. You know, I used to really think growing up, well, it's what you're exposed to growing up, your surroundings, circumstances, your circle of friends. That contributes to how you think or what you say. I used to very much be persuaded by that. Now, there is some correlation to these influences, but the main root of our wayward sinful tongues, the Bible says, is the evil heart because we're sinners. We sin with the tongue because we're sinners. Not we become sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. So if you think, well, I swear a lot. Some of you guys know maybe coworkers doing this at the, at the office. Every time I swear, I'm going to put $5 in the jar uh, every time I curse. Or I'll fake it until I make it and just use nice words around people as much as I can. Or every time I gossip, I'll just somehow self-inflict some type of punishment upon myself so I'll be prevented from gossiping. Well, I have bad news for us all. Those methods never truly change you. I've tried probably every type of outward-focused method to become, quote-unquote, godlier. But it was always just on the surface. That's like spraying Febreze air freshener on the top of soiled, wet, moldy, rotten carpet. You just keep spraying it and saying, I hope it dries and I hope everything's... Eventually the whole carpet has to be ripped out and dealt at a very much deeper level. And this is where the gospel needs to come in. Good news, we say this all the time, good news always follows what we understand and know of our bad news first. And we see a lot of bad news in today's passage. There has to be some divine intervention because there was this promise way back in Ezekiel 36, 26, most of you know this, where it says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Only God can remedy this. And he does so by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to forgive us of our evil hearts and sin. God then sends his spirit to us, not to spray Febreze on our dead hearts, but to regenerate it, to grant us a new heart that is now able to tame the tongue, albeit imperfectly, but to tame the tongue by his power and might and not our own. We need saving friends 
brothers and sisters. We need saving, not just a ticket to heaven, but we need saving in the deepest level, a complete heart transplant and overhaul. And the more we try methods apart from Christ and his spirit to deal with this besetting sin of the tongue, the more we dig ourselves in this depraved hole. And that sounds all good and right, and I say amen. But I'll be the first to tell you, I think I sometimes go into this autopilot mode. And I try to deal with these besetting sins only on the surface when I should be dealing with them in that heart level, on that deeper level, through Christ. Because as we indeed have new hearts, we believe that's true, the old self, the old man still remains to tempt and torment. So this takes faith, right? This takes faith. This gift of faith from God to believe and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, all that is proclaimed in the gospel. And then actually faith, it takes faith to persevere in this battle. And as we heard from last week's passage, this faith works. This faith produces good works. We learn that we are saved by faith alone, but a faith that is not alone, but produces works as validation that the true faith was present uh, present in the first place. And as scholars note, that passage on faith and works is then also what's immediately after that passage, also fleshed out here in chapter 3 in the context of words. Words are a form of works. As Douglas Moo again notes, quote, the control of the tongue is one of the author's clearest expressions of what true religion actually resembles. I was kind of struck by that. What an overlooked and often neglected part of obedience, how we use our words. If someone says, hey, Robin, uh, what's the clearest examples of what true religion resembles? I'm not sure if I would get to the tongue in my top five or top ten. But James is saying, no, 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 no. This is proof. This is proof in your works that you truly have faith. What's even more striking is that we use our words so often that it's kind of easy to forget that it's also under this tongue, under the lordship of Christ, meaning helping the poor in good works or helping orphans or bearing one another's burdens at church. All that might not be everyday occurrences. They are good works, but they not be, not, might not be everyday things. But words are part of everything in your life, every day maybe almost every minute. So brothers and sisters, don't be lulled into overlooking the tongue. And after Jesus roots out our evil and replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, what next then? Well, if we're talking about words, we are then in turn to feast and be nourished by the words of Jesus. His speech needs to then rule and reign over us, the word we have in front of us. We know Psalm 119, 105, the word, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I realize most of us know, know all of that. But when your tongue is running amok, I want you to just test yourself. When you say, well, that was, that was kind of a bad week, God. What happened with my tongue? When it's running amok, ask yourself, God, how's my heart? Is my heart being nourished by your word? Am I just trying to do away with the negative effects of the tongue, but not replacing that trajectory with being under the lordship and the words of Jesus Christ? Then your tongue will go astray again. There is this deep, I see this in my life, deep, direct correlation when I am careless with my own words to my neglect of meditating on his. 
proven over and over again. So ask God this morning to reveal this overlooked malady, how we haven't noticed how our small tongue can cause such serious damage. Meaning, have we brought down others instead of building them up with our words? How we have discouraged others instead of offering prayerful encouragement? How we have joked at others' expense instead of honoring them? How we have gossiped and slandered instead of cherishing truth and loving with our own words? If this goes unrepentant, this author warns us of the consequences. And so it's never too late to turn again to faith and repentance. And part of repenting is not, again, not just turning away from these sinful things, but repentance also is the turning towards Christ and his resurrection and his righteousness. So many people miss that. Repentance is this kind of deep season of guilt and confessing sins, but then kind of getting up off your knees and going on. But we have to Repent. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is just to forgive us of all our unrighteousness and sins. But we get back up and we turn back to him. So let us take this God-given opportunity to say, Lord, help me love people with my words. May my heart be set to build up others this week at church, at home, at work, at play. Let my faith work. That's a good way to start praying in the context of this whole letter. And if we look at the, all the one another's in the scriptures... In the New Testament, so many of them deal with words. Love one another with your words. Confess your sins to one another using words. Bear each other's burdens. Use words. Admonish one another. Use words. Encourage one another. As we wait the Lord return, those are using words. So God redeems our tongues for the purpose of building up the church and others. That's the greatest witness we can ever do is use our words for his glory. Do this out of joy. Now I'm going to conclude. Let me bring this to a close with some encouragement since today's passage is pretty heavy, full of warning and heaviness. And I'm going to quote Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, Australian authors that wrote a book called The Vine Project. And they ask and answer, what is the disciple? And they wrote, a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in faith and repentance. What is a disciple? A forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in faith and repentance. I included that quote because I think controlling our tongue is most definitely part of the hardships, but the struggle, but it is part of the discipleship to Jesus Christ. But the fact is that we're sinners who are forgiven. First and foremost, we're sinners who are forgiven. And as they say, we're continually learning, growing in Christ through faith and repentance, meaning this is a process. It's not a once-in-your-lifetime decision, faith and repentance, but it's an ever-growing process. So be encouraged that even though you might think, I've really messed up in this area, now I'm being convicted like, goodness, how that one little conversation at work or at church or that one criticism is growing into a growing fire and you feel lowly, and you want to turn and repent and believe, and you just say, how come I'm not further along? Remember this. It's a journey. It's learning Christ in faith and repentance. And we'll keep growing, even in the most arduous thing of taming, albeit imperfectly, what we once knew was untamable, all by the grace and sheer power 
of Jesus Christ, I want us to leave here encouraged that God is for us in this and not against us. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. The words of you, God, including this word today. We believe that this word today is, as 2 Timothy 3 says, breathe out by you. And this word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We trust this to be true. And that you'll provide the help that we need. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.